I know that many of us are looking forward to Friday. And most likely, those who are most looking forward to Friday are the kids. Because they've seen the gifts underneath the tree. They've been told not to touch the gifts underneath the tree. They have been reminded what will happen if they touch the gifts underneath the tree. And so are twiddling their thumbs and trying to keep their hands away from the tree as much as possible. And I can identify with that as much as you can, as, as I remember time gone past and celebrating Christmas Day and, and looking forward to opening up presents and, and excited about those gifts that were given to us by my parents and grandparents and, and having those before us. Now, whether right or wrong, uh, you know, I probably was more excited about the gifts and, and I needed to be more excited about Christ at that time. But there was no denying there is eagerness when it comes to Christmas Day and enjoying those gifts, playing with them, and experiencing the love that comes with Christmas. And just like we have remembered from our childhood and, and experiencing now and, and enjoying now, the, the unwrapping of gifts and the, the ability to in, enjoy them, play with them, whatever it might be, I would like us this morning from this passage of Scripture to unwrap some gifts that God gave us at Christmas. That's what I want us to do as we work through this passage of Scripture. I want us to unwrap some gifts that God gave us at Christmas. And the question I want you to ask yourselves as we go through this text, what does God offer at Christmas? What does God offer at Christmas? I have three things this morning from this passage that I think believe that the Zechariah brings out for us that God offers for us at Christmas. The first thing that God offers is that he offers salvation. He offers salvation. Verses 67 through 69, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, context-wise, we do need to discuss this. Zechariah is talking after the birth of his son. And that was a miracle in and of itself as Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and were past those years, but God, in his mercy, enabled them to be parents for the first time. And after much discussion, the, the relatives were trying to get uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth to name their son after one of their relatives. But they disagreed and said, no, we're, we're, we're going to name him John. Zechariah affirms that in verse 63 and said his name is John. And, and previously his mute condition was now free. And now he spoke openly praising God for what happened. And it's quite interesting to consider and ponder that at this time, probably Mary was there as well, witnessing all of this. And so there, there's great fear, verse 65 and 66, and wonder among people who heard this. What's, what's going to happen to this child? What's gonna, what's, what is his life going to look like? So Zechariah comes now to, to bring this adoration to God, and, and he talks about the salvation God is, is bringing. And, and notice with you, if you will, verse 67, that he is the Spirit of God uses Zechariah to announce this good news. The filling of the Spirit 
The word filled here means to be under the control of something. And, and so in this passage, Zechariah is under the control of God, using his words as God guides them. And what he says in the following verses are <coughs> those from God's own mouth, and God is directing him, telling him what to speak. This is not like the previous occurrence. If you jump back to the first part of Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah is face-to-face with the angel Gabriel, and, and Zechariah doubts, doesn't he? he? He doubts that God will be able to do this, and so God has to do some silencing of Zechariah's words in order for him to understand that this is something from God, and he must believe it. Now, contrary to being against God at that point in time, Zechariah is now for God. He is filled with God himself, where Previously, he had resisted God. And it leads me to to say, isn't it just like our God, who who when when people resist, he does a work in their life to turn them around to now being used by God. And that's Zechariah. He he prophesies here. The word prophesy means to tell beforehand, to tell uh, something in the future. So what Zechariah is doing here is is through the Through the filling of the Spirit, being used by God, he is joining the prophets of old and and foretelling what God will do and what he has done. So when you think of prophecy, don't always think of prophecy as a future telling the future. Think of it also as telling someone how to live in the present. That's if you look back in the Old Testament, that's what the prophets did. They not only told the future, they they employed their their listeners and audience to live today and live in light of what they've been speaking about. So there, there is this sense where Zechariah, under God's control, becomes a preacher, a, a, a proclaimer of truth. Notice also that as he talks about this salvation, that the salvation originates with the God of Israel. Blessed is the Lord God. The term blessed here is, it has the idea of to speak well of or to inherently praise. And I was just thinking of an illustration to to describe this a little bit, I might call the illustration of speaking well of someone in public for their actions or their character. We've all done this or have heard about this. Maybe it's been done to us where, where someone says publicly, hey, you know, John, you've done a great job. I appreciate so much your hard work. Or perhaps in a corporate setting, you've been acknowledged for your work in your job and, and, and the boss is saying, you know what, Gary, thank you so much. You've, you've done an excellent job. Appreciate all your hard work. That's, it. That's the idea of the term to bless. And perhaps it's recalling to mind the psalmist for us where the psalmist encourages a continual blessing of God. Psalm 34, verse 1, as well as Psalm 66, verse 8, say this, O oh, to bless our God, O oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard. We, we read it this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means to speak well of. So, so uh, Zechariah in this passage of Scripture is speaking well of God. He is blessing God with his words. And notice who he's blessing. He's not just blessing God. He's blessing the Lord God of Israel. And so he's calling to mind it. And we need to think back in the context uh, of the nation of Israel, which is what we are dealing with at this point in time. God is connected with the nation. That is how you know God. So Zechariah speaks of the God who chose Israel as his people and continued to be their God despite the rebellion against him. 
the Lord God of Israel. This is the true God from of old who, who led the nation of Israel out of the exodus, in, out of Egypt, into the, to the promised land. And is now, for centuries, having dealt with the nation through the kings, through the prophets, is now bringing about a new way of dealing with them, and that is through the Messiah, through his Son, which he will get to. But salvation originates with the one true God. It doesn't exist from any other source. It isn't found in church attendance. It's not found in good thoughts or good actions. Salvation is from God alone. You know, Zechariah doesn't say, blessed is my wife for giving birth to this child that will one day do this. No, he's saying blessed is God. God is to be praised. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. God has brought redemption. <clears throat> the word visit, uh, the word for here, <clears throat> is the reason for why God, God is to be praised. He, here's the reason. So you can think of the, the following verses that we will discuss as, as the reason for why God is to be blessed and praised. He has visited his people. The word visited has the idea of to examine closely, to inspect, and the goal is to see what's going on for the intention of, of being helpful, providing help. God does not visit just to see what's going on. No, he visits with a purpose. And at this point in time, as, as John is born and he's going to have this great ministry, as we know, God is using him to visit his people and to see what's going on so that he can provide help. But not only has God visited his people, he's redeemed them. The word redeemed here is two words, and it means to make a payment for the purpose of buying back something. Uh, we might use the illustration of a pawn shop. I don't know if we have any of those here in, in National Falls, but um, a pawn shop is a business, as you well know, of buying and selling things, but sometimes people come in to borrow money, and then it will leave a particular item, whether it be a watch, whether it be some sort of family heirloom as collateral for the loan. And the, the, the idea is that once the terms of the loan are up, uh, the person comes and gives back the money plus interest so that he can get his item back and, and retain it once more. Well, that's the idea here, is that God has redeemed or bought back his people. They were once lost in sin, and now he has bought them back Perhaps Zechariah is recalling the words of Isaiah 35, verse 4, which says, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense, the re redemption of God, He will come and save you. God provides redemption. Now, you'll, you'll notice with me that these words here, in verse 68, we'll see this in verse 69 as well, are in the past tense. Okay? Uh, grammar, past tense, past action, something that happened in the past. But what's important to view here is, yes, they are in the past tense grammatically, but there is a future here. There is a future here. And what Zechariah is saying, that God accomplishes redemption, has already accomplished redemption, even though it is still future to his day. Has visited and redeemed. So Zechariah is viewing as saying these things with a viewpoint that God has already done them. God has already visited his people. God has already redeemed them, but it's still future, but he's done it. 
as well as verse 69 is raised up. The idea of God has already done it, but it's still, it's still going to happen. So verse 69, uh, what, what does this look like? What does this redemption look like? God raises up the Messiah as his method of salvation for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This term raised up means to awaken, raise up to an upright position. Here, here the word is used metaphorically, and it points to God equipping someone for a task. We can look over to Judges chapter 2, verse 16, to see this term in action. It says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So, so uh, the book of Judges is referring to uh, this verse referring to the judges who God raised up or made, uh, equipped them to judge and bring the nation of Israel out of captivity that they were in. So that's the idea. God raised up someone to complete this task, and this one is, is the horn of salvation, which refers to an instrument by which God brings salvation. And here it refers to the Messiah. And we can, we can ascertain that because of the context of what's going on as well as the Old Testament prophecies of God raising up salvation. And then, well, in the house of his servant David, that, that kind of links it to where the salvation is coming from. The psalmist in Psalm 18.2 uses the term here. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God raises up the Messiah to accomplish the salvation. Notice he says, for us. We don't have anything to do with it. We don't have any responsibility. No, God is, God is the initiator. He is the one who is taking all the action to visit and redeem. He is the one who is raising up this method of salvation. He is the one who is accomplishing this through the Messiah. And Zechariah makes note that this is in the house of his servant David in verse 69. It points to that royal line through whom the Messiah must come and makes the claim that this is the, to the throne of Israel. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew notes this as well. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the Messiah comes claiming the throne, raised, being raised up for the purpose of saving the nation, and indeed, at large, saving us. And it leads me to ask the question this morning as we think about a point of application from these couple verses. God deserves the glory and salvation. Are you giving it to him? I'm not asking this as a, just a, a condemnation. I'm asking this in, in, as as. as someone who needs to witness for Christ and must witness for Christ, am I giving God the glory and salvation? When I'm talking to people about Christ and who he is, am I saying, you know, God, God came to save you? Or, or am I saying, using words that reflect a human involvement in salvation? That's wrong. God is the one who saves. God is the one who redeems. And so forth, when we're talking to people about Christ, whether we're, we're at home, whether we're at our workplace, are we bringing God into the conversation? Are we making sure he gets the glory, he gets the honor, or are we leaving him out? A classic example is Christmas time, right? Christmas time. We're, we're in the throes of it. 
Once, once Thanksgiving's over, guess what happens? The decorations come out, the celebration starts, and that's fine. But what gets left out? Christ. God gets left out. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And again, we, we got the whole political and economic tags with it. I understand that. But without Christ, there is no Christmas. And without God, there is no salvation. So when you and I talk to, him, to, to people about salvation, about being saved, about what Christ has done for us, let's make sure we add God into that and give him the glory. Even as you talk with people about how you got saved, and, and maybe, maybe your testimony isn't that great. Maybe your testimony is like mine. I was saved at the age of five, a little boy in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In the, in the attic, I stayed in the attic. That was fun. That was probably been the most coolest room I've ever had, a staying in the attic. It was fun. Five years old, coming to faith in Christ. There's nothing glamorous about my, my story, but guess what? God is my story. God is my salvation, therefore I glorify him, and therefore you must as well. Are you glorifying God? Are you making sure God gets the glory in the salvation? Secondly, as, as, as Zechariah moves on here, he, he recounts another gift that God has given to us. And again, we have to view this in context of the nation of Israel. But the second gift God gives is that God fulfills his promises. Through, starting in verse 70 through 75, he lists several of them for us. But look at, look at what he does first of all. He knows that the promises are written in his word as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. This is how God's promises are known or revealed is they're revealed through his word. That's the spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. That's how God used to communicate in the Old Testament. He used the prophets as instruments to communicate his word to people. Some of you might say, well, how do I know what God has promised? Go back to his word. Look at his word. It has been around since the world began. So as Zechariah is prophesying this and, and proclaiming this about his son and about who God is, he's recalling Israel's history. And he's, he's making the point that these are not new promises or new revelations, but these are old promises that will not fail. They were made to the nation of Israel, and though they may be forgotten now, he recalls them in the light of the birth of John. They are written down in his word. All the nation had to do was to go back and to see them. These promises that God made through Abraham, through David, through so many other figureheads of Israel's history, yet they, were, they are written in his word. Which leads me to ask, are you thankful that the promises of God are written down? You know, we, we don't have to think, okay, when did God say that? Hmm. No, we can go back. Go back in his word and, and, and recall for ourselves from Scripture what his promises are. And, and Zechariah gets into these promises. First promise he, he notes is that God promised Israel physical deliverance from her enemies, that we should be saved from our enemies and from all those who hate us. The word saved has, speaks of physical deliverance or preservation. This was something that was desired throughout the Old Testament. The psalmist in Psalm 7 says this, O Lord my God in whom I put my trust, save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. <laughs> that is the heart's plea 
of the believer, especially in the Old Testament. Save me, deliver me. From whom? From the enemy. The word enemy here has, has the idea of a deep-seated hatred that reveals itself in hostile actions. It's someone who always seeks to do you harm and thinks about ways of doing that and acts upon that desire. And for the nation of Israel, that was so true. They always experienced opposition. The end of verse 71, and from the hand of all who hate us. They always were, were, were under threat of physical hurt and harm from people who, had, who uh, abhorred them, detested them, hated them so much. The word, the word hate here, again, the idea of detesting or whoring. And the best illustration I can come up with is there are certain foods that I will not eat, that I, will, I actually abhor, okay? And, and to be fair, let me be fair, my wife has done an excellent job since we've been married for three years now of getting me to be more open, Okay. Somewhat reluctant on my part, but open nonetheless. But there are certain foods I, w- I will not eat squash. Okay, I flat out will not eat it. I have tried it. I, I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm sorry. For those of you squash lovers in this room, I apologize. But I can't do it. They're, they're, I just abhor squash. Get it away from me. But that same perspective of hatred and abhorrence, and I'm using that in, a, in a, a funny manner, but that same perspective of hating something is what the nation of Israel faced again in, with regards to her enemies. It wasn't just verbal hatred, it was physical hatred. You think of, of, of the book of Esther, when Haman had this great plan of how he would destroy the nation that he would gather all these people who hated the Jews and use them to destroy the nation. He used the political might of Persia to do so. Such hatred and hostility that Haman had to go through such great lengths to try to destroy a nation of people. And Zechariah proclaims here that they they are saved, that we should be saved from our enemies. That salvation comes from the Lord God and delivers them, preserves them from those who utterly hate them. The second promise he notes here is that uh, God acted in mercy that he promised to, previous, uh, promised to Israel's previous generations to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Again, the word mercy here has the idea of compassion or pity. Or pity. Uh, the, the construction here is to, is to show intent. God desires to perform mercy that he promised. And he does not leave those promises unfulfilled. Isn't that great? When God promises something, he intends to fulfill that promise. He doesn't leave it empty-handed. He doesn't leave it, oh, I may or may not. No, he's going to fulfill it. He intended to show mercy to the nation as he intends to show mercy to us. That's the idea of the word fathers, refers to the ancestors who lived years before the current generation. So God promised mercy back then, and he's fulfilling it now. God was merciful back then, back then he's fulfilling it now. Third promise, that God remembered what he promised Abraham. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. It, re- it recalls to mind, that's the idea of the word remember, and what is God recalling to mind? God is recalling to mind his covenant, his mutually 
beneficial agreement between two parties. And the specific covenant here is the Abrahamic covenant, where God promised to Abraham descendants, a great name, and that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. If you remember that, following back in Genesis, God made the covenant agreement. And the interesting thing about that covenant is there is only one party who is obliged to fulfill that agreement, and it's not Abraham. It's God. God swore that he would fulfill that oath that he promised. The word swore here has to, the idea to validate or affirm a promise by calling upon an external source to bring judgment. If what is promised does not come true, God swore by himself that he would bring to pass what he promised. And since God cannot lie, he did and will bring it to pass. The book of Hebrews notes this promise by saying this in Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And for a Jew like Zechariah, that was a great comfort to remember that God promised those things so long ago to Abraham, and he is fulfilling them even now. Here's a, here's a fourth promise God promised a relationship with him verses 74 and 75, to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. To grant has the idea of to, to permit or express uh, desire to, to be fulfilled. So God grants the nation what? That we, they would serve him. And this, the idea of the word service here is religious service. And he is speaking of service to God in worship, the freedom of worship. Being, again, referring to delivered from the hand of our enemies, there is no longer fear. There is no need to be afraid. They will now have the freedom of worship without physical opposition. There will no, be no need to, have guard, to guard oneself while walking to the temple. There will be free, unhindered worship to God. And what will this worship look like? It will worship look like holiness and righteousness. That's the standard by which the offer, uh, worship is offered. No longer will the nation be stained by her sinful acts of idolatry. She will be morally pure and upright in her worship. When you think about that with me for a minute, for a long time the Israel had, had struggled with idolatry. And even as, as we will see, you see in the Gospels, they continue to struggle with that. They continue to to try to worship God, but guess what? There was always these distractions, temptations, idolatry in the midst of it, but there comes one day where he will wipe all that away so that the nation can serve him without fear, without being afraid of repercussions, but they might serve him morally pure and blameless. All the days of our life refers to there's a day coming where all that will be done will be done in worship to God alone. And it's hard for us to, to picture this as, as we're thinking, we're trying to put ourselves in, in a Jewish perspective, but this was so important. That's what, that's what God created the nation to do. That's why God put his name with them, so they might one day totally focus worship on him. 
That's what he promised, and that's what he is going to bring about. And so that leads me to ask this question, thinking about the promises God promised them. And, and, and some of you might be saying, well, Pastor, you know, what about me? What has God promised me? What has God given me? Well, we can take the promises of the, uh, to the nation of Israel, although they are not directly to us, and we can remember the very important thing. Are we thankful that we have a God who keeps his promises? Are you thankful that you have a God who keeps his promises? A God who says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A God who says, peace be still. All these promises that God has given to us in our lives and through his word, are we thankful that we have a God who keeps them? You know, God is not like us. We, we break our promises. We forget our promises, don't we? We fail in our promise-keeping. But we do have a God who does not. God always keeps his promises. And that is something that you and I can rely on in our daily lives, in our daily struggles, where we just don't know what's going to happen, we can rely on the fact that God keeps his promises. Are you thankful for that this morning? The last gift that Zechariah opens up for us that God gives us at Christmas is that God grants hope. God grants hope. Now he, now he shifts a little bit to talking to his son. His son's barely a week old, and now he's, he's proclaiming what his son will do. And, in, and God gives this hope through John. So John has a mission. And that mission from God is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the highest or, or the most high. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John has a task to accomplish. In order to accomplish that task, he becomes this prophet, this proclaimer of the most high God. He fulfills Isaiah 40, verse 3, or he will fulfill it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He is a prophet of the most exalted God, the one who is above all other gods. There's none like him. And he will go before the Messiah. It's a, it's a future. It's telling, telling what John will do in the future. He will go before. So it's just like a prophet tells before, John goes before. To prepare. The idea of word to, to prepare is to, to cause to be ready. And it really reflects the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 5, verse 6, where Elijah is prophesied to prepare the people for the day of the Lord. And Jesus affirms this by, uh, well, well, we'll see uh, Matthew chapter, uh, let's see, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Then Jesus says in Matthew eleven fourteen, If you are willing to receive it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. That's what is his goal, to prepare the way, to make sure that people's hearts were ready for the Messiah. John's mission was to show God's salvation is available through the forgiveness of sins. That's the, the 77 there. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. The word knowledge here has the idea of to, to understand by way of gaining facts. 
So John's goal wasn't to save people. His goal was to give them the facts of how to be saved. And he wasn't responsible for how people would respond. He was still responsible to give that, that facts. It's like taking a test in school. You know, the teacher can teach all he wants and give you the facts. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for what's on the test. That's what John's responsibility. He was teaching. He was proclaiming, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's who you need to follow. He didn't save, but he was one who pointed to the one who would save. They would be forgiven. God, God sends away sin in forgiveness. That's what John was proclaiming. We see this later on in, in John chapter, or going to Luke chapter 3. Verse 3, and when he went into, just speaking of John the Baptist, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He was helping people to see that they need to repent and to ask forgiveness, and God would forgive their sins. The, the phrase here, by the remission of their sins, points to how, God, how salvation is available. God would forgive sins. This is how sin is forgiven, by the forgiveness of sins, by the remission, by the covering of their sins. John's mission also is enabled by the mercy of God. Verse 78, Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. The only reason John will be able to be a prophet and minister in this way is because God has been merciful to him and the nation. That's the only way. God is merciful by bringing salvation to the nation, and John is equipped to do that, and that is alone from God's mercy. It's a different word for mercy here. The, diff- the word is compassion coming from one's innards. <laughs> it is the tender mercy that comes from feeling a deep-seated love for a person. One might uh, describe that mercy as coming from a relationship, describe the, that deep-seated love coming between a husband and a wife. There, there's a deep-seated love for each other, and that comes from a part of you that you cannot explain, but yet you know it's there. It's that tender mercy of God that will enable God, John to complete his mission and do it. Now, the phrase day spring refers to the, the, the idea of the rising of the sun, and it describes the coming of the Messiah, the day spring on, from on high has visited us. Here, it's, it, it's, uh, the translators use a past tense verb to describe this, and some of the manuscripts do reflect that, but I think a future tense is better understood here. So it's not has visited, but it should, should read, with which the day spring from on high will visit us. So it's, a, it's pointing to the prophetic announcement that Zechariah is doing. It's, it's talking about Messiah coming. So this mercy of God that is in, John is enabled to do ministry points to the Messiah who will come, and that is an act of mercy. And then finally, underneath this point, <clears throat> John's mission allows the light and peace of God to shine, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Several words here that need to be defined. To give light has the idea of to provide illumination. You know, in darkness you need to see, and, and light provides that illumination to see. Well, the darkness here refers to sin, and the illumination will be provided by John's ministry to help them see that Messiah lightens that darkness for them. 
and not only lightens that darkness, but to those who are sitting in darkness. It is Messiah comes to a, a, a people who continually are underneath the condemnation of sin and death to give light to those who sit under darkness and the shadow of death. And to do what? To guide our feet into the way of peace. The word guide here has a to direct or lead to a place. And it removes the obstacles along the way. So the path can be clearly walked. So John's mission enables the Messiah to come and provide that guidance on a clear path to peace with God. The way of peace speaks of the peace between God and man and between man. Thou, all of that is enabled by the Messiah. It's what man desires, and it's only possible with the Messiah. John will, through his ministry, allow this to happen. Messiah accomplishes that, does that, but John going for beforehand, preparing the way of the Lord, allows salvation to come, allows mercy to be understood, and allows light and guidance to occur. And all this brings about hope to a people who are sitting in darkness and under the condemnation of death. And it leads me to ask this question, are you committed to sharing the hope God offered you? I mean, Zechariah is talking about what his son will one day do and how we will... will have this ministry that will allow the Messiah to come and bring all these benefits of salvation, the hope that we have in salvation. And if, if this is the desire of Zachariah's heart to, to let people know this is coming, what does that say about us now who have the hope? Are we committed to sharing that hope with others? We were, we were looking at Christmas lights this past week, just kind of driving around with Josiah and just kind of having a fun time looking at the light displays outside. And, and my wife remarked that most likely those lights are going to stay up for a little while because people are looking for hope. You know, this pandemic, this these uh, political situation has left or is leaving people with a desire for hope. You got to hang on to something, don't they? So they're going to hang on to their Christmas lights, to the good feeling that comes with Christmas. But you and I have a greater hope to offer, and are we doing that? Are we committed to sharing the hope that we have been given and received with others? As we celebrate Christmas this Friday, there's going to be much joy, thankfulness, laughter, and fun. Hope you're looking forward to it. We'll also pause, I hope, to think of Christ who was born so long ago and what God did for us at Christmas. And as we do that, let us make him known to our friends, family, neighbors, and community. He gave us some gifts at Christmas. Let's let others make the God of Christmas known for those gifts that he gives given to us.